Hey everyone, this is Chris Walker speaking. I'm the teaching pastor at Meadowbrook Church. I am recording this on my computer. I am in the basement. It is dark and it is humid, but it is the only place in the church that is actually kind of quiet. Uh, we have a very busy building. So uh, I am down here and I am recording what has become part three uh, of our teaching on pacifism and peacemaking. We have been in a series called Roots, where we are looking at some of our Anabaptist distinctives, what makes an Anabaptist an Anabaptist. Our plan originally was to take two weeks to dig into pacifism a little bit, and so we've done that. So this is actually the third uh, message. So if you haven't listened to the first two yet, I would encourage you to pause this now, listen to the first two, and then come back to this one, because there's a bit of a flow to these three messages. So the first week we talked about just what is the Anabaptist thinking on pacifism and peacemaking? Where does it come from in the Bible? What does that look like? And so that was kind of the theology and the theory behind it. And then week two was very, very practical. Just we told some stories and we talked about uh, what can peacemaking look like uh, in a real life context. And we shared some stories of that because we wanted it to be very practical. And throughout those messages, we had asked you to send in any questions that you might have about this whole topic, and a ton of questions came in, which was amazing. Um, and the downside was that there were way too many questions to cover on a Sunday morning, uh, and they were really good questions, they were deep questions, they were rich questions, and they uh, all of them needed maybe some unpacking, and I didn't want to do the disservice of having to rush through them uh, in 30 seconds on a Sunday morning. And so we've added this message as well. Uh, we have some things coming up in the next couple of weeks that we couldn't change, so we couldn't really add another Sunday, um, but what we wanted to do was take some time to answer some of those questions. So that's what this is. Uh, so this is me talking to a computer. The dynamic is a bit different than when I'm preaching. If you listen to me preach, you know that uh, on a Sunday morning, there's usually tons of amens and hallelujahs and cheering. So this will be a bit more subdued than that. Um, but we wanted to take some time to answer your questions and uh, just say thank you for sending them in. Uh, just awesome to see how we're wrestling through this. And one of you said to me in the questions, I don't agree with this whole topic, but I'm really thinking about it. And that's really all I wanted as we started to dive into this. I know this topic is tough. I know that it's new for many of you. Um, I know that there's uh, a tension between the real world and then the scriptures, and we know what Jesus taught, but what does that look like? And it's a very, very tough area. It's a very, very emotional area because we all have these instincts for self-preservation and, and preserving uh, the lives of our kids and safety. And so um, this is tricky. This is all very tricky. tricky. And, and we've just said, well, just come and wrestle with us. Come and wrestle with us and uh, Christians on both sides of this discussion can lovingly disagree with one another. And so we are going to take some time now to go through your questions and uh, to give some answer. They may not all be perfect answers. I am wrestling through this just like you are, um, but we're going to jump into that right away. All right, so first question. Many of you have asked this uh, either in the lobby after the sermon or have sent in an email. Uh, so the first question is, doesn't a nation have the right to defend itself? Um, if there's uh, only pacifism, then, you know, what happens when evil rises up? What about crime? You know, don't we need a police force? Uh, does a nation have the right to defend itself? And the answer, uh, honestly, simply is yes, absolutely. It is right and biblical for a nation to defend itself. And so a lot of this idea comes from Romans chapter 13, verses 1, and then verses 4 and 5. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. 
For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. So that's New Testament. That's not Old Testament. That is Paul in the New Testament. Uh, And remember, in Paul's time, he's talking about Rome, which is not the greatest governing authority. They're doing a lot of bad things to Christians. And even here, Paul says, we are to submit. Later on, Peter would write, we are to be good citizens, model citizens, wherever we are. Uh, And so in this passage that Paul writes in Romans, uh, the Bible clearly teaches us that the state has the sword and has the sword to defend its citizens, to administer justice. And so this we would look at and say that's the army, that's the police, that is whatever. Um, At times, obviously, if the state has the sword, it needs to use the sword. Obviously, that is going to happen. And so Martin Luther, who was a Protestant Reformation leader, uh, he came up with what's sometimes called the Two Kingdoms Doctrine. It says every one of us is a citizen of two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, and then there's the kingdom of wherever we live. And out of that came this idea that church and state are both two different servants of the Lord. Uh, Here Paul says the state uh, has the sword and they serve the Lord. Uh, We, the church, of course, also serve the Lord. So the church and the state are two servants with two different purposes. The church wields the gospel and the state wields the sword to protect its citizens and for the purpose of justice. Uh, So this basic idea is very good that, you know, God has, uh, you know, not wanting injustice to flourish entirely or evil to flourish entirely has said, yes, the state has the right to defend itself, to defend its citizens, to police. Uh, This is a biblical idea. And we know from scripture that God will sometimes use nations uh, to kind of check other nations. We see a lot of this in the Old Testament where uh, God in his covenant with Israel will say, Israel, I'm going to use you to stop the evil of the Amalekites. Or when Israel becomes really evil, he'll say, I'm going to bring Assyria and I'll use Assyria and their sword to come and to keep you in check. And so in our personal lives, if uh, God wants to discipline us, he can allow a trial to happen. And uh, that's consistent in both testaments that God will allow these trials that we go through. And as we go through these trials, uh, sin gets worked out of our lives, character gets built up, uh, the evil in our lives gets purged out. So if it's an individual, God can send a trial. If it's nations, God will often use the nations to to discipline one another, and he will bring them. And we see this again really clearly in the Old Testament, uh, a bit in Revelation as well, that God will use you know the sword through nations to discipline and check and to purge evil and do all of those things. So when Luther comes up with this idea of two kingdoms, that we're all citizens of two kingdoms, this is a time in Europe when church and state are pretty much one and the same. They are incredibly intertwined. And and because of that worldview, that mentality, uh, Luther took this passage in Romans and said, so if you are uh, really submissive to the state, then you need to be submissive to the state in everything. And that includes if they say, pick up a sword and come to war with us, you need to go to war because that's what submission to the state looks like. Uh, Catholics and Protestants were pretty much both on the same page, that if God's established that authority, you need to do what they say uh, because God has put the authority in place. The Anabaptists came at it from a different perspective perspective, as they did on on many things, and they said, uh, absolutely, yes, we need to obey our earthly leaders, we need to submit to their authority, they are put in place there by God, but they said, when we read the book of Acts, 
the apostles don't always listen to the earthly authorities. When the earthly authorities command them to stop talking about Jesus, they don't listen to that part. And in Acts 5.29, they famously say, the apostles say, we must obey God rather than man. And so the Anabaptists said, yes, we're citizens of two kingdoms, but they're not equal. We're citizens of God's kingdom first. And so we will submit to the earthly authorities. We will respect them. Uh, we will do what they say in so much as it does not conflict with God's word. And if they tell us to do something that conflicts with God's word, we are going to go with God's word. And we don't, we're not bound to listen to man in that case. And that's what the apostles did in the book of Acts. So God's word is supreme supreme and that that's maybe pretty obvious but it got the anabaptists into trouble because one of the things they said is we are not bound to go and fight because jesus has told us to go the way of peace and so we won't fight it's one of the many reasons that the anabaptists were persecuted so badly is because that was tantamount to treason in the eyes of the state if you don't obey an order and if you don't come and fight that is worthy of death and so many of them were killed because of that so as anabaptists were wrestling through this themselves back when luther was talking about these things they said we will uh, submit to the state except when it conflicts with our understanding of God's word and that got them into all kinds of trouble. So looking at what Paul wrote here in Romans there's no contradiction uh, in saying that the state must at times use force to protect its citizens and to administer justice. The Bible confirms this in both testaments. There's also no contradiction with saying that and saying Christ followers uh, choose not to participate in that violence, but will find other peaceful ways to resist evil and to work for justice. And, and uh, Luther's idea of two servants of the Lord, two kingdoms, is the kingdom of God's going to do things a different way. The kingdom of the state needs to do things its way, but the kingdom of God is going to do things a different way. Next question. Some of you have asked about, uh, what about the peacemaking qualities of soldiers and police that when the Canadian army goes out, it's not always to wage war. Often they go out to keep the peace and they go to end conflict and to, to bring resolution. And our police do that as well. Our police are there uh, at, you know, to use force if necessary, but their main job uh, in a perfect world is to de-escalate tensions and to, to not have to use violence. Uh, and that's absolutely true, and that's absolutely amazing. And I read something recently that said, in spite of you know the way the news maybe reports on things, there are actually way less deaths from war uh, in in these days than in the past hundred years. Like there does seem to be less conflict. It maybe seems like more because we have twenty four hour news that covers it all the time. But the number of deaths from warfare is actually going down, uh, which is an amazing thing. And so it's incredible, and Canada is incredibly blessed. Uh, it's interesting to me when we talk about Jesus saying, you know, the sword begets the sword, violence begets violence. When you juxtapose Canada next to the States, the States was born in violence. They were born in revolution. They threw off uh, their oppressors violently. And really, violence has not ever really left the states. Uh, that violence has, you know, has stayed and has showed up, you know, in civil war, in uh, wars overseas, in gun deaths even now. Uh, you know, it's a violent culture. Uh, in Canada, we didn't start in violence. We waited. It took a hundred years more uh, than the Americans did. So, you know, negotiation is slower. But, you know, we peacefully got our independence. Uh, and we have been involved in war, of course, but not nearly as much as most of the world. And we have this reputation in the world as a peacemaking country. 
Uh, and it's just interesting. And I'm very glad to be Canadian and not American. No offense to our American friends. And we have some American family. But um, you know, when you compare America and Canada, and you compare even once you correct for population differences, uh, there's still way more violent crime in the States than here. And uh, and we are just kind of known as a peaceful nation. And that's one of the great blessings that Canada is to the world, is that we do peaceify situations. We send out our, our soldiers, and they are there, and they peaceify, and that's an amazing thing. And we should be so grateful for that. We should pray that that's mostly what we get to do. With our police, I'm so grateful for the age that we live in. And I, I know from friends of mine who are police officers that they work very hard to not use violence. They work very hard to de-escalate, and they have also worked very hard even with their technology uh, to create things like you know tasers or pepper spray or, or that there's a beanbag gun that I've seen them use where uh, it's you know it's not lethal force they're you know trained on restraint holds and different things and uh, you know they're doing everything possible to not have to be violent or at least overly violent because they're trying to, to peacefully contain a situation so we should be grateful for that and we should be you know happy that that's the country we live in and that this is the time that we live in and we should pray more and more that yes that will be what the Canadian army is for we are bringing peace around the world we should pray for our police officers that they don't need to use violence but that they will have wisdom and know the ways uh, to you know use violence as little as possible which I know is their desire we need to pray for their protection and keep them safe and this ties into um, you know another question question that has come up, which is, you know, what's the right attitude that pacifists should have towards other soldiers and towards uh, police officers? Um, and I gather just from conversations and from what I've studied is that Anabaptists have not been very good uh, in this area. Uh, Romans thirteen seven says, if you owe a person honor, give them honor. Uh, and it seems to be talking a lot almost about civil authority in that context of that verse. If you owe honor, give honor. And we owe honor to our soldiers and to our police officers. We owe them honor. And I think what has happened over time is that as Anabaptists have... Um, you know, not wanted to look like they're endorsing violence. They have just withdrawn any honor from soldiers. And I know some of you have shared with me the struggle of, you know, I don't wear a poppy on Remembrance Day because I don't want it to look like I'm condoning the violence. And um, and I understand that struggle, you know, when you have this principle that you stand on. At the same time, we have talked at this church about uh, the difference between acceptance and agreement. Um, we can accept somebody even if we don't agree with everything that they do. We talked about that in the context of uh, you know LGBT stuff and and different things that you know we can love someone and honor someone and respect someone even in disagreement on any topic. And Christians are really really bad at that. And so what we tend to do on any topic is. Uh, because I don't want you to think I'm in agreement, I will withhold my acceptance. Uh, I will not treat you with love and honor and respect because I don't want it to look like I'm agreeing with the thing I don't agree with. And it's just, it's a bit of an overly simplistic way to look at the world. My wife and I don't agree on everything, but we accept each other and we love each other and we honor one another, uh, even in disagreement. And we are learning as our marriage goes on more and more how to lovingly disagree and lovingly have an argument. And so we don't have to agree with everything somebody does when, you know, Paul, as we just read in the last question, says, submit to your governing authorities. They're doing a lot of things. The Romans are worshiping idols. They are killing Christians. They are waging wars of conquest. There's a lot of things that Rome is doing that Christians wouldn't agree with, uh, but you can still honor and respect that. 
when it comes to our soldiers and police, they're not, of course, doing anything like Rome was doing. Um, you know, the question is, or the, the challenge is, we, we should always uh, respect someone who's willing to lay down their life for someone else. That is always worthy of honor and respect. We might disagree on whether it's okay to kill for a cause, but we should always be willing to give our honor to someone who's willing to die for a cause. Absolutely. And so on Remembrance Day, personally, I will wear a poppy. And some of that is because my grandfather fought in World War II, and I honor him for that. Um, so we can honor and respect, and we should give our honor and respect, uh, even if we say I can't participate in the violence or contribute to the violence. I can still honor and respect uh, the servants of the Lord who do that. Jumping off of that last question, uh, a lot of you have struggled with this one as well. Isn't it hypocritical to let others fight for us and defend us and die for us and then enjoy the benefits that this violence brings to us but still preach nonviolence? So isn't it hypocritical uh, to let others go and do the dirty work for us and even die for us and we get to reap all those benefits of living in a free society without, uh, you know, we're not Nazis right now. Um, we don't have crime running rampant in the street. So isn't it hypocritical to enjoy all that while still promoting nonviolence? And that's a tricky one, and it's one I've wrestled through as well, because I really do believe what Jesus taught, and I can't get past that, no matter how, how many debates I watch or books I read. Uh, I can't get away from the clear teachings of Jesus that the Christ follower is to choose the way of peace and not the way of violence. But it also, this question in some ways, uh, it highlights one of the big misunderstandings. And we talked a little bit about how pacifism is not passive. Um, and that just seems to be a really hard bell to unring. It just seems to not really sink in for people that when we talk about pacifism, we're not saying sit around and do nothing. Um, and, you know, many of you, of you, as you've asked this question, have said, you know, how can we just sit around while evil gets to flourish? How can we do nothing while these things are going on? And the answer, you know, where I want to jump up and down is we're not supposed to do nothing. We're not supposed to sit around and do nothing. And so, you know, is it hypocritical to enjoy the benefits? And, and I uh, it's just it's it's a good question and it's a hard one. Well, if we do do nothing, if we do let them do all the work, if we sit at home and don't do anything, then I would say, yeah, that is pretty hypocritical. Uh, I love the story of Desmond Doss, which we showed in the clip uh, on Sunday morning in the second week. And he was a Christian pacifist and he said, uh, you know what? I can't contribute to the death and destruction. As a follower of Jesus, I just can't do that. But I also can't sit at home. I can't let others fight for me. I have to stand up against evil. And so I'm going to go where there is death and destruction, and I'm going to be a medic. And I will expose myself to the same danger. I will put my life on the line. I will die if I need to. I will do the dirty work. I'm just going to choose a different method to stand up to evil rather than contributing to the violence. And it's just a, a great picture of what Christian peacemaking can look like, that I can't contribute to the death and destruction, but where there is death and destruction, I can do good in the midst of that. I can be Jesus in that moment to people, and I can serve, and I can wash feet, and I can work for healing. Uh, I can't work for death. And so if we do nothing, then yeah, that is pretty hypocritical. But just consider the army's role is to resist evil, ultimately, hopefully, to bring peace. 
The role of the police officer is to resist evil, ultimately to bring peace to the society. And the role of the Christ follower is also to resist evil and ultimately to bring peace. So the question is, if the army is doing their job and if the police is doing their job, how are you doing your job as a follower of Christ to resist evil and to bring peace to this world? If you're doing nothing, then yes, we are probably being hypocritical if we are letting others do everything. But if I'm doing nothing to resist evil, if I'm risking nothing to resist evil, then if I do nothing while watching others do it and enjoying the benefits, then I can rightly be called a hypocrite. And we have not done this well. Um, Even for Anabaptists and Mennonites, uh, often pacifism has meant we are going to do nothing. We will sit at home and they were accused of cowardice and they were accused of, of leeching off the society. Um, but that you can't make that accusation against Desmond Doss, who went to the front lines, who put his life on the line, who exposed himself to danger, right? He was not a hypocrite. It's hard to call him a hypocrite because he was actually out there doing something. So, what are you doing to resist evil? What are you doing to peacify the world around you so that we aren't being hypocrites and we aren't letting others do all the work? That's an incredibly tough question, uh, but it's something that we need to wrestle through as Christ followers. Moving on to a couple of Bible questions. Uh, Didn't Jesus specifically say that he came to bring the sword and not peace? Uh, Good question. One of you brought up. So this comes from Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37. Jesus is speaking and he says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so one of the tough sayings of Jesus, and Jesus, as he often does, reminds us that there is a cost to following after him. And so people look at those verses and they say, well, Jesus says, don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. And so how can he be all about peace? How can he be a peacemaker? And as you'll see, as we look at a couple of different Bible things here today, As a professor of mine in Bible college always used to say, context, context, context. Context is everything when we're trying to understand what the Bible means. If we don't have context, we can make any verse say basically anything we want. We can pull it out of its context and jam it into our context. And so you have to look at what is the context. What are the verses around the scripture saying? Uh, What is the heart of what is being said? What does the other scripture say? And so when we look at this one, we need to think about that. So in the New Testament, a sword gets used as a metaphor a fair bit, and it gets used as that uh, because it's sharp, because it's uh, something that can split or divide. Uh, Most famously, maybe Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any sword, uh, and it pierces the heart. The author of Hebrews goes on to say, and so sword can get used as a metaphor, and Jesus often uses metaphors and word pictures when he's talking. And so in context, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, for I've come to turn, and then he goes on, I've come to to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. Um, And he says, this is what I am coming to do. And so in context, he's not talking about uh, self-defense. He's not talking about war. He's not talking about enemies. He's talking about family. And he's using the sword as a picture that says, I am coming to bring division. I'm coming to split like a sword splits. Uh, Because of me, because of Jesus, a man and his father might 
fall into disagreement. A daughter might turn against her mother. Um, Jesus is controversial, and as he comes, not everyone's going to receive him. And so in families, there may be division uh, between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. And some of you have this story in your own family. You're maybe the only one who walks with Jesus, and it has caused some division or it has caused some conflict. So Jesus disrupts the peace of family sometimes, and his encouragement is, uh, come and follow me anyway, right? Be worthy of me and come and follow me anyway, because I am Lord. And so to use this passage to suggest that Jesus is encouraging violence or encouraging the use of swords is to ignore the context entirely. And if you're going to read it in the context and say, you know, Jesus came to bring a sword and say, well, that's a literal sword, then you have to use that literal sword in the literal context, which is to say Jesus wants you to use your sword on your families. Because that is what he is talking about. And that, of course, is ridiculous. But this verse gets clung to by people sometimes who want to justify violence. Um, but it's it's a poor reading of the context to look at it and say, Jesus means take up the sword and hurt other people. The sword comes to divide families because Jesus divides families. Because not everyone will receive Jesus. That would seem to me to be a pretty crystal clear way of reading this passage. Moving on, there's another teaching of Jesus. This one gets way more attention. And uh, for those who are looking to, to justify violence, this one becomes maybe the main one from Jesus. Uh, so the question is, why did Jesus tell his disciples specifically to buy swords if he never intended them to use them? Uh, so this comes out of Luke chapter 22, verses 35 to 38. Jesus is coming to the end of his life. They are uh, getting ready to be in the garden where he is about to be arrested. And the word says, starting in verse 35, Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. For it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The di disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough, Jesus replied. So the premise of this argument is, here's Jesus saying, go buy a sword. Um, I'm about to die, and you guys are going to need swords, is usually the understanding. And so we're entering into a dark season, so go sell your cloak and buy a sword. Um, and out of this comes a mentality for some that says, so it's okay for Christians to have a sword, to use a sword, because here's Jesus specifically saying, buy a sword and, and be ready to use it. Uh, even one uh, preacher who I greatly admire, I still greatly admire, I uh, was listening to him preach on this topic once, and he said, So for the Christ follower, there is a time to turn the other cheek and a time to love your enemies, but then there is a time to pick up the sword. And my heart broke a little bit, and I will explain why uh, as we go through this. Uh, but I think that's such a, in any fair reading of the text, is such a bad conclusion to draw. Uh, and yet is very, very common. It is maybe the most common way uh, people who believe in just war or different violence theories use to say it's okay for a Christian to participate in violence because Jesus clearly told his disciples to buy swords. And so why would he do that if they weren't supposed to use them? So first of all, the fact that Jesus is telling them to buy swords means that they don't have any swords. 
Uh, and that might seem kind of obvious, but I think that's important that they've been together for three years. Jesus has sent them out a couple of times. They've gone out two by two. Jesus said, you're going into really dangerous places. I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. Uh, and in none of those cases does Jesus say, take a sword with you for self-defense. So if he's really concerned about their protection, uh, why has he never encouraged them to have swords before? Uh, he's telling them in this passage, we don't have any swords. You guys need to get some swords. And they've been in plenty of dangerous times before. They've been in times where people are trying to kill Jesus, uh, where people are threatening to kill them. And Jesus has never before said, take a sword for self-defense. Uh, that just hasn't happened. And so the fact that he's telling them to buy swords means that swords have not been a part of their ministry uh, so far. Apparently, Jesus has not been concerned about their self-defense so far. And so he's telling them we need to buy some swords. And as we look at the context, again, context is everything. Because in the passage, he tells them to buy swords, but he also gives them the reason. And the reason just gets skipped over. People just say, here's the verse that says buy swords. But then in the next verse, Jesus says, buy the swords because I need to fulfill the prophecy of being found amongst the transgressors. Uh, it's a prophecy from Isaiah that Jesus needs to fulfill. And he says, this prophecy is about to come to fulfillment. So buy some swords because I need to be found among the transgressors, according to Isaiah. That prophecy is about to be fulfilled. So Jesus is not a sinner, right? Jesus does not break the law, and transgressor means lawbreaker. Um, but bad guys have swords. And Jesus is heading into the garden, and the soldiers need a reason to arrest him. And by having swords, Jesus can become a bad guy. He can become a transgressor in the eyes of the state. They have a reason to arrest him, because uh, they don't have one up to this point, because he's never done anything wrong. So Jesus needs to fulfill the prophecy that says, I am a lawbreaker. I'm or, sorry, I'll be found among the lawbreakers. Jesus was not a lawbreaker. But the word of God says that the Messiah would be found among the lawbreakers. And so Jesus says, buy some swords so we can fulfill that prophecy. When the soldiers come to get me, they will see me as a lawbreaker. And the prophecy will be fulfilled and will trigger the events that will lead to the cross. And so that seems so obviously clear from reading the passage that I don't know how we can come to any other conclusion from it. Uh, unless we just choose to ignore it, of course, and just focus on the verse that says, by the swords, without focusing on Jesus' follow-up to that. As if to conclude this even more clearly, uh, the disciples produce two swords and says, Lord, here's two swords, and Jesus says, that's enough. Now, if Jesus means to defend yourself, two swords are not enough. There are 12 of them, and they're typically sent out two by two in different directions, right? Jesus sends them out, and they scatter. So if there are six pairs of two apostles, two swords are not nearly enough. They would be fighting over who got to have a sword. You guys had the sword last time. You know, like there's, it's not enough for them to defend themselves against danger if that's what he meant. But if what he was talking about was what he explicitly said he was talking about, fulfilling this prophecy of being seen as a lawbreaker, then two swords are enough to be seen as a lawbreaker when the soldiers come to arrest him. And the, the cherry on top of the Sunday, it's not in this passage, but it's in Matthew's gospel, is that uh, a little bit later in the garden when the soldiers do show up, Peter, maybe misunderstanding what Jesus says, grabs one of the swords and hacks one of the ears off someone who came to arrest Jesus. And he gets a stern rebuke from Jesus saying, the sword begets the sword, violence begets violence, put your sword away. Uh, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. 
And so when Peter tries to use this passage, apparently, the way some Christians try to, when he tries to read Jesus' words as a way of saying, I have a right to fight and a right to defend myself and a right to use a weapon, he gets rebuked by Jesus. So when you put all of those things together, it just seems really clear uh, where I got so heartbroken by the, the pastor who I respect who said we have a right to pick up a sword according to Jesus is only because that's such a bad Bible reading. It's such bad Bible reading. Uh, it is a bit surprising to me how, how many cling to that still as a reason to justify violence. Um, the context is everything. And so if we are to hold it as something that Jesus says we can do uh, in self-defense or to pick up the sword to commit violence if necessary, or there's a justification for it sometimes, we can only do that if we ignore three out of the four verses, if we ignore the prophetic word in the middle of the verses, which Jesus clearly says he's fulfilling, and if we ignore the aftermath when Peter tries to act violently and Jesus corrects him. Uh, so that's what pacifists would uh, do as they approach this passage. A couple of you asked, why didn't Jesus correct soldiers that he encountered in his ministry? There are various times in the Gospels where Jesus meets up with a soldier, and at no point does Jesus say, uh, you know, quit your job or find another job or uh, don't be violent. Uh, so if Jesus really wanted this to happen, why didn't he do that? So one of the main stories comes from Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 and 13, and this is the story of the centurion who comes and sees Jesus and his servant is sick and uh, they have a little encounter and Jesus heals the sick servant. And so the premise of the argument is that Jesus, uh, what a great moment for him to call the guy out on his sin. If, if violence is not something God wants us to do, uh, why doesn't Jesus do that here? And the only problem with that premise, it's not a bad question, but uh, it's what in debating terms we call a argument from silence. And so it's trying to infer something based on what isn't said. And so some would look at this and say, Jesus didn't correct him, therefore violence is okay. And an argument from silence is just always a really bad way to try and make a point. Because the problem with an argument from silence is we can get it wrong. So if you were to ask me, Chris, what's your favorite food? And I said, uh, you know, lots of things are good, but my favorite food's probably steak then you would be right in concluding Chris likes steak. Now, if you were to ask me what's your favorite food and I didn't answer, and then you said, well, Chris didn't answer, but it's probably chicken, uh, you're making an assumption based on silence, and in this case, you would be wrong. And that's the problem with the argument from silence, is there's no way to know whether you're right or you're wrong. What we do have is, just to, to challenge the idea a little bit, is certainly many other encounters in the Gospels where Jesus meets people and does not call them out on their sin. Uh, Luke 19, we have Jesus meeting Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, the scripture tells us, is a sinner. He is a thief. He is corrupt. Uh, but we have no record of Jesus saying, hey, you got to shape up. Hey, why are you ripping people off? There's none of that. When Jesus meets Peter for the first time, uh, we know Peter has lots of issues with pride and arrogance, and Jesus doesn't call him out on any of those things. And so, um, you know, to assume that because Jesus is silent, he's secretly saying something. I mean, it, it might be right, but we just can't base anything on that because we might be wrong. What's interesting in this story of Jesus and the centurion is that what we do 
do see clearly is Jesus is loving his enemy in this moment, right? The Romans were oppressing the Jewish people. The Romans were hated by the Jewish people. The Romans were violent towards the Jewish people. Uh, And here is Jesus showing love and compassion, just like he said that we should do. Uh, That much is crystal clear. And so on any topic, we should always be wary against the argument from silence. Uh, We might be right, but there's no way to know that we're right. So we should base things based on stuff Jesus actually said and not try to infer things based on what he didn't say. There's another one, another story. uh, This one comes up a lot from Luke uh, 3.14. It says, Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And people bring up this one often and they say, like, what a great moment for Jesus to to correct the soldiers, right? The soldiers are coming to him and saying, what should we do, you know, with our lives? What should we do to honor God? And what a great moment for Jesus to say, put down your sword. Uh, Why didn't Jesus just tell them to do that? And I mean, this is an argument from silence as well, but the, the argument is, is even easier than that, which is that this is not Jesus talking in this passage. Uh, Jesus is not speaking. When the soldiers come to him and he replies, it's not Jesus, it's John the Baptist. Now, if you are one of the ones who brought this up, please don't feel bad because I have seen PhD level Bible experts uh, say the exact same thing, that while Jesus told the soldiers to be happy with their wages, therefore he's implicitly endorsing being a soldier. And it's not Jesus talking. And uh, it's just, this gets so bandied around and it becomes uh, something that spreads so much that it's almost just become a commonly accepted thing that Jesus seems to give some encouragement to soldiers. And it's not Jesus. Jesus is not talking here. It is John the Baptist who says, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. Uh, and again, don't don't feel bad, please, if you brought this one up, because this is so commonly shared that it's almost just become a, an accepted fact, even though it's not actually what the Bible is saying. And so to this, we would say as, as pacifists and peacemakers, um, again, John is not endorsing it. He is encouraging his enemies to be decent uh, to the Jewish people. Um, he's not encouraging, he's saying, you know, just have some ethics as you do this. He's not encouraging violence or anything like that. Um, But John is not Jesus is also the other argument that John is the last of the old way, the old covenant, the old Testament. Uh, Jesus would say John is the best of the old covenant, the best of the prophets, but Jesus is the first of the new and Jesus words are more important than John's words. At any rate, John 536, Jesus says, my testimony is weightier than that of John. Uh, so if we're looking at John and Jesus and saying which one is more important, we, we look to Jesus. Jesus just told us that. His words are more important than John's words. Uh, and so that's how a pacifist would come at these passages. Another question that comes up is, what about war metaphors in the New Testament? There's lots of them. Uh, as Paul is writing and as others are writing, you know, I have fought the good fight, put on the armor of God, be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The word of God is sharper than any sword. And the premise is, if God is so peaceful and all about peace, then why are there all these war um, pictures in his word? And uh, it's a good question. And uh, at the same time, uh, we go, they're, they're obviously metaphors. They are word pictures that, uh, that Paul and others use. And Jesus did this too. And uh, again, Jesus earlier, we talked about, talks about a sword bringing division to a family. And so 
you know, the writers of scripture would use things in everyday life to make a point. And so, you know, they sometimes use farming metaphors. Uh, Paul uses a lot of athletic metaphors, you know, running a race and winning a crown. And, um, and at times they use war metaphors because they were a war culture. There were soldiers everywhere and there were swords everywhere and there was uh, violence everywhere. But they're clearly metaphors. None of them are meant as literal. Uh, nowhere is it saying, you know, put on the armor of God to slay your enemies. Uh, it's actually the exact opposite. Paul writes in Ephesians, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And so, again, could not be more clear that we don't fight in the natural. That's not what the Christ follower does. Our fight is a spiritual fight. Our war is a spiritual war. So there is a fight. Uh, there is a, a, an enemy. There is something we are called to fight against. But it's not a literal fight. Paul could not be more clear in this passage. And so these metaphors that get used about warfare, um, these are just object lessons based on things that everybody who was reading at the time would have been familiar with. And it makes the point, and they are all in the context of spiritual war, uh, never in the context of physical, literal war. All right, one of you asked this question. This is a, a great, hard question, and I admit I don't have a really good answer for it. But the question was, what about cases of abuse or domestic violence or sexual assault? Um, you know, are we supposed to just take it? Uh, is that what taking a blow and, and turning the other cheek looks like? Um, should we stay in these situations? Like, do we fight back? If we can't fight back, what can we do? Um, awesome question. And this is the, these are the wrestling match moments because... Again, like this is, and this is maybe the most emotional argument of all, because uh, war is emotional and defending our family and everything. But, uh, but you know, the idea of, of in the case of a rape, uh, you know, what do you do in the case of, of domestic violence? You know, what does it mean to be a peacemaker in those moments? Um, and so there's a lot of emotion in this one, and it's a really tough one. And again, this is something I, if you have ideas, I would like to hear them. If you have thoughts on this, because uh, I don't have an amazing answer to this one. Um, and Lord willing, none of us will have to face these things. We know, of course, that there are those who do. Um, first of all, uh, no, you do not need to stay in that situation. Absolutely not. Uh, you need to do everything you can to get out of it. Um, hopefully there are people in your life who can help. The church certainly can help, but uh, under no means does pacifism mean that you need to, to stay in an abusive situation or take it. Uh, absolutely not. So let's clear that up right away. But when it comes to the the rapist or the abuser, the the you know the husband beating up his wife or whatever, you know it's it's about the power for that person. It's about the dominance, and so I would never judge anyone who fought back in those moments. Um, my worry, I guess, would be does does fighting back make it worse? Does fighting back? escalate the violence against you in the case of a rape you know if there's a knife involved or a gun involved um you know if it's about power of the abuser or the rapist uh then does fighting back help or does it escalate and so that would be my only concern i would never judge anyone for fighting back i i you know any woman who fought back against a rapist i would 
tip my hat to and fully understand my fear just out of my fear for that woman is if you start swinging you don't know how that's going to go and and that would be my only concern is is you know what happens next um so yeah like that's <laughs> it's a tough one and and so if we are going back to our original premise which is i can't i can't escalate the violence but i also can't just sit there and do nothing then what can i do uh, and so let's be thinking about that, you know, let's be thinking and, and then how can we help those who are in these situations, you know, what can be done in between there? And I mean, I've told Kaylee, my daughter, you know, if anyone ever grabs you or touches you, you know, your job is to scream, your job is to run, your job is to, you know, to, to fight back if you need to. And, and maybe that's not the right answer. Uh, and, and part of this is I'm just kind of thinking out loud, but you know, what can be done? And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this series is not to necessarily solve every answer because we can't probably do that, you know, with a bunch of hypotheticals, but at least to get us thinking. So what can we do then? Um, if violence in that moment maybe makes it worse and maybe, you know, I heard one woman say, I honestly would rather die than than be raped. I would rather, so I'd rather escalate it and I would rather lay down my life than than have that done to me. And I mean, I guess if that is your your conviction, then um, then I, I get it. I fully understand. Uh, Brexy Cavey uh, from the Meeting House Church tackles this question, and he was speaking with a sociologist uh, who deals with rape. That's their area of study, and they deal with rape victims and helping rape victims and. Um, and he was asking them, like, what can you do? And the sociologist said, uh, just based on their experience, and it maybe isn't a perfect situation all the time, but they said, you know, to a woman, if you're ever uh, being sexually assaulted, uh, she said, jam your fingers down your throat so that you vomit and vomit all over yourself as much as you can. And if it can land on him, then so be it. Uh, but just vomit, just get covered in it, which is, of course, is disgusting. Um, you know, not, I would think, more disgusting than what is happening to you. And she said they've just, that's been, I guess, demonstrated, and I don't know the statistics or how universal it is, but it is just demonstrated that that has been something that has worked for women in the past, that there is something about uh, the vomit that can just disarm the situation because for the guy who's in the power play move, um, there's something about sickliness that doesn't, make our power instinct rise up it, it makes compassion rise up or, or disgust rise up or whatever um, but it's not it's not an arousing thing and so they have just found that that is something that can work and so Bruxy had a lady come up to him after a service and just said oh I'm I'm a peacemaker I believe in this teaching but rape is the one thing where I just can't I just if I can't fight back uh, and if I don't want to escalate the situation okay but I just can't imagine Jesus is okay or would want me to just sit there and take it without doing anything and that answer from the sociologist about you know making yourself throw up actually brought her a little bit of hope as weird as it sounds just in the sense of oh so it there are th- things apparently and and they maybe aren't satisfying things it's not a perfect answer um but just as we're trying to figure out you know how do we not escalate the situation so you get more harmed um how do we you know not just sit there and take it and not resist in any way 
uh, oh, it's just, it's heartbreaking to think about. And even like as a man, I feel silly uh, talking about it because it's, it's something that uh, for those of us who are men, we just don't understand. I remember just recently talking with Sarah uh, there'd been a news article or something that just said it was about just the way women looked at the world that was different than men and men don't ever get it. And I, I was just saying to Sarah, is this true? Like the way you that women see the world? And Sarah was just saying like, well, when I, you know, if I go for a run in the park, um, she's like, I'm sizing up every man I pass, every man I see, um, you know, is he a threat? And she's like, I'm not doing it consciously necessarily, but she's like, I'm just always very aware of where every man is because I just don't know. Uh, and as Sarah's been out for her jog, you know, she's had cars slow down beside her and men, you know, staring at her from the car, just watching her and then taking off and, you know, catcalling and stuff. But there's just a world there that men, we just have no idea. And we need to make a lot of apologies for our gender and uh, the horrible things that we do. Um, you know, that, that maybe don't even seem like a big deal uh, compared to bigger things like rape, but that make women feel unsafe. And uh, so, the, you know, I would be really interested to, to how women are processing this. I feel, again, just a bit awkward as a man talking about it because it's not, it's not something probably that, uh, that will affect me in the same way emotionally as the thought of it would for a woman. So, uh, I don't have a great answer to this question, but we are uh, we are gonna re- keep wrestling through it, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. And uh, and one of the challenges for all of us is, you know, if there are cases where women are in abusive situations or, or whatever, is in those cases, what are we doing as followers of Jesus? What are we doing to help? What are we doing to lay our lives down? What are we doing to resist? What are we doing to help that woman? Uh, and we're going to keep wrestling through this one. And we're going to pray a lot that these situations, if they're happening, they stop. Uh, and we'll pray protection that they don't happen as well. All right, last one. Thanks for hanging in there uh, on some tough questions. And uh, sort of save the maybe the biggest one for last. Um, and it's a, a question. It, this one probably is the most common question that's come up so far. Again, just between discussions in the lobby after church or... Uh, or emails that came in, or Facebook conversations I've been having. And uh, it's a theological question, but it's an important one. So isn't God himself pretty violent throughout the Bible, sometimes even commanding Israel to engage in violence? And isn't Jesus that same God? So if Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament, how do we reconcile this with Jesus' command to peace and nonviolence? And you may have asked that in different ways, but I kind of was just consolidating. So um, yeah, that's that's maybe the most important theological question in this whole thing is that uh, God seems to be violent in Scripture sometimes, and Jesus is God in the flesh. And so, how do we reconcile, uh, you know, the peace-loving, peacemaking Jesus with the God who sometimes says, "Go kill everybody in that city." Um, if you want to go deeper in this, I'm going to answer it just in a few minutes uh, in a short uh, spurt here. But um, Greg Boyd has a good teaching on this. Uh, he's a pastor of Woodland Hills Church in Minnesota. Uh, if you Google Meeting House Jesus versus Jehovah, uh, this will come up. And he, he talks about this very issue and he's got some interesting thoughts on there. He's a PhD. He's a smart guy. Uh, he's a really good teacher. Greg Boyd has also written a book called uh, The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. 
And what's interesting, if you listen to Jesus versus Jehovah, if you listen to that message, uh, that was about seven years ago, I think. And in the message, he talks about, I'm writing a book. It's called Crucifixion of the Warrior God. It's 400 pages, and I've just finished my first draft. And now we are seven years later, and he literally just released that book about a month ago. It's over 1,400 pages now. It's in two volumes. Uh, I haven't read it, but I imagine it's amazing, uh, and it is a very in-depth look at everything that we're talking about in this question. Uh, Greg Boyd's a brilliant guy. So I'm not going to go through all the scripture because there's lots, but uh, you know there are scriptures like Exodus 15.3, which says, The Lord is a warrior. There are scriptures like throughout the Psalms where Israel uh, celebrates their victories, often with this image of God fighting for them and God uh, using warlike uh, metaphors. There's passages like uh, 1 Samuel 15 where God commands the Israel, the Israelites to go uh, and kill all the Amalekites, says, I'm going to go deal with them for their sin. He sends Israel to do it. Uh, we see this in the book of Joshua throughout the whole book where God sends Israel against different Canaanite cities. And so uh, God seems to advocate violence, uh, at least in the Old Testament. And these are tough to reconcile uh, with what Jesus says, which is put away your sword and choose the way of peace. Uh, God doesn't choose the way of peace uh, in some of these passages in the Old Testament. But God in Jesus seems to tell us to do that. And so because of these passages, uh, the most horrific things have been done in church history in the name of Jesus. Uh, God commands Israel to go kill everyone in this Amalekite city. Uh, therefore, crusaders felt justified in going into a Muslim city and killing everybody there uh, under the sign of the cross and in the name of Jesus. Um, nations would rise up in the Reformation. Protestants would fight against Catholics and vice versa. They'd massacre each other. Uh, even when people were trying to surrender, they would kill them and they would use these Old Testament passages to justify it. And because of passages like this, uh, one of you said to me, you know, my atheist friends have a field day and I, I really don't know what to say to them that, you know, uh, there's just God commanding violence and how can you worship a God who's so violent? And Richard Dawkins, who wrote a book called The God Delusion, a famous atheist in our time, he's a scientist and he's called himself an evangelist for atheism. Uh, and in his book, he points to these passages and says, God is a horrible person. Why would you want to follow a violent person? And in the, all of those things, of course, they tend to ignore Jesus uh, altogether. And I would also very strongly disagree with the premise that God in the Old Testament is primarily violent. That's the, that's the argument that comes up, is the Old Testament God's an angry, violent God. Uh, if you actually read the Old Testament, and of course it's a big book, but if you really read it, uh, you will see a God who is loving, a God who is compassionate, a God who is forgiving, a God who keeps his promises, a God who loves his people like a husband loves a wife. Like the overwhelming weight of the Old Testament is on the exact same God that we see clearly shown in Jesus. Now, definitely, there are these passages of violence and, and there's passages of his anger uh, that we need to wrestle through. But I would just, I would not accept the premise that, you know, there's Old Testament angry God and then New Testament loving God in Jesus, uh, which some people would try to put out there. We reject any notion that God has changed or is any different between the two Testaments. If Jesus is God in the flesh, uh, then he is God in the flesh and he didn't shift and God didn't change. Hebrews 1.3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. 
Colossians 1.15 says the sun is the image of the invisible God. So God, who we can't see, suddenly became visible in Jesus. And so we can't say that there's any difference. And there was heretics in the very early church who looked at some of those violence passages and then looked at Jesus, and they did come to that conclusion. They said there are two different gods. There's an Old Testament angry God and a New Testament loving God. Uh, Their heresies were roundly rejected by the church completely. So our tension is we have Jesus who comes and and shows us who God is. The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. And he comes and he says, choose the way of peace, turn the other cheek, love your enemies. But in scripture, we also have God in heaven who at times apparently uh, has been violent or calls for violence. And it's interesting to me that when we hold these two things side by side, that there is a time where God seems to call for violence, and then there's Jesus who teaches peace and nonviolence. It's interesting to me for Christians that when we lean, we have to lean one way or the other, how many lean towards Old Testament pictures of God, right? Like if you have to choose one or the other, as Christ followers, shouldn't we choose Christ? But what seems to happen over and over, and and certainly with the Crusaders and other parts of church history, is we have teachings of Jesus, we have Old Testament passages of violence, we're going to go with the Old Testament violent passages. If you have to choose, we're going to go with the old way. We're not going to go with the teachings of Jesus. And that's just interesting to me, uh, that we are Christians. We are not followers of Moses. We are not followers of David. We are followers of Christ. And so following him should be our first priority. So for those like Dawkins and other atheists who would say that God is violent, just by his nature he is violent, by his character he is violent, uh, first of all, we would just disagree with that right off the bat. Scripture says God is love, and love is not violent by its nature. Uh, In the Garden of Eden, before sin enters the world, God is not violent there. In heaven, in eternity, uh, it says that God's going to end all violence, and there's going to be no violence in eternity. So God is not violent there. So if God, uh, as some have suggested, by his character is violent, then that would mean the Garden of Eden would have to be violent, and eternity would have to be violent. Because if that's his character, it's his character all the time, because we believe that God doesn't change. And so... We reject the premise that God's nature is violent or that God isn't a peacemaker. Psalm 46.9 says, He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. Uh, as we come to eternity, the, the weapons will be you know, beaten into plowshares, Scripture says. You know, weapons will turn into farming instruments because we won't need it anymore because God's going to end all violence one day. Uh, God is a peacemaker. That is who he is. He is, without a doubt, a peacemaker. And that's never seen more clearly than in the cross, where he died to bring us to peace with him. So God ultimately is all about ending violence, ending strife, bringing peace. That is who he is. I don't really know how you can deny that. When you look at Eden, you look at eternity, and especially when you look at the cross, when you look at all these scriptures about God ending conflict, God is most certainly a peacemaker. So if God's not violent by his nature, then that has to mean that just as we've said for people, uh, violence is the consequence of a sin and evil in the world. And for God himself, that must be true as well, that violence is uh, part of the consequence of sin and evil in the world. Uh, And let's not forget, it was something that he was willing to endure personally as violence on the cross so that he could ultimately end it. He was willing to endure violence personally so that one day it could be over forever.
But we see in Scripture that uh, even Jesus in the book of Revelation, when Jesus comes back the second time, and this is New Testament, when he returns, uh, he's coming to overcome the enemies of the world. He's coming to overcome the armies. He's not choosing to uh, lay his life down in those moments. He's not choosing to be a, uh, a non-violent peacemaker. It says that by the sword in his mouth, by the word of his mouth, Jesus will overthrow the armies of the world uh, who rise up against him and who oppress his people. So Jesus doesn't choose peace in that moment when he returns. And even in the New Testament, the Bible says of God that vengeance is mine and I will deal with these things. And so uh, so we see Jesus, you know, as the glorified, resurrected Lord. Uh, we see him coming at the end to bring to bring peace, not in a cross-like, peaceful way. Uh, Jesus is choosing a different way when he returns. So what do we do with all of this then? So we see Jesus is God. We believe that is a core element of our faith. And we see, even in the New Testament a little bit, Jesus doesn't always choose, as the resurrected Lord, to be clear, not when he walked the earth, but he doesn't always choose the peaceful way. He will overcome his enemies. He will overcome the devil and throw him in the lake of fire. Um, so we see that happening. So how do we reconcile all of that with how we are supposed to live our lives according to Jesus? So one option is, first of all, that Jesus as God uh, doesn't actually owe us an explanation at all about anything and there's no contradiction between the fact that god can do what he wants while telling us to do something different uh, there's no contradiction there because he's god and we're not i was driving home with kaylee my daughter the other day and she was annoyed because i was going to get to do something that she wasn't going to get to do she's six and just i was making a joke but i just said to her you know that's just the way it is and she said well that's not fair and i said it's a hundred percent not fair i get to do way more things than you get to do and i was joking and we were laughing but i was i was right i was making a point i said kaylee i'm daddy and you're you're my daughter and i said at one point it's crazy the privileges i have that you don't have uh, and she was kind of getting annoyed, but laughing at the same time. And I was just making the point that, yeah, like I'm dad and you're not. And that will change as you get older and you will get more and more freedom. But while I'm dad and you're not, I get to do things that you don't get to do. And I get to make decisions that you don't get to make. And we are not on the same level in that sense. We may be equal members of the family, but mom and dad are up here and the kids are down here. And, and that's a bit of a picture of this is that, you know, if God chooses to, uh, to use violence in the Old Testament um, to do something, then then he can because he's God. Uh, the fact that he has told us not to do that, there's no contradiction there. Uh, God can do what he wishes and he commands us what he wishes. Another step of this is that uh, I say the phrase all the time, Jesus came to show us the perfect way to live. He came to show us the way God wants us to live. And no one ever disputes that. I've never had anyone push back on that ever in 16 years of preaching. Jesus comes to show us the perfect way to live. And yet when it comes to pacifism and peacemaking on that topic, we're willing to put that aside, a lot of us. Uh, and again, I know we're all wrestling with this. But if Jesus came to show us the perfect way to live, then that includes peacemaking. Uh, and so we are not, I think, easily able to ignore that or put that aside, although some of us seem very willing to be able to do that. Uh, the other question is, you know, it, does God cause the violence? Greg Boyd gets into this in his teaching. 
Is God causing violence uh, amongst nations or is he simply harnessing uh, the violence and using it for his purposes. So we've already talked about how God has given each nation the sword to defend itself and administer justice, and God will use the nations to discipline each other and keep each other in check and resist evil. God will let that happen. But there's a few passages in the Old Testament, uh, you know, where God is talking to a, a pagan king and saying, you know, you're really ambitious. You glorify yourself. Uh, you want to take over the world. And so I'm going to use you to discipline Israel. Uh, I'm going to use you for that. And it's not that God is causing the war or causing the violent violence, but where that king is violent and is full of evil, uh, God is going to allow that. He's maybe going to harness that uh, to work out his purposes on earth. And there's a difference there too. It, it, it's not necessarily that God is making violence happen, uh, but where where we are violent by nature and where we have conquest in our hearts by nature and where we uh, have the sword in our hand and want to use it by nature, uh, maybe there are just times where God will will allow that in order to work out his purposes. That's kind of a side point. Um, but God may harness human violence at times to bring about his will between the nations. Nonetheless, although that may happen between nations, uh, Jesus shows us a better way for us as human beings to act because his will is perfect and ours is not. Uh, so there's no violence in the Garden of Eden. There's no violence in eternity. Violence is not ultimately what God wants. That's not how he created the world. He died to overturn violence, and he will one day end violence forever. And because of that, he tells us to peaceify. Go live out that right now. Uh, and that's my last big point, and it's an important one. We know that Jesus comes to bring a new covenant, but Jesus also comes to bring a completely new message from heaven to us. And so if you were to look at everything Jesus preaches and everything that Jesus teaches, you could sum up his whole kind of preaching catalog in one phrase. Uh, if you were going to do that, that phrase would be, the kingdom of heaven is here. He says it over and over again. It's, it's the underlying theme of who he is and everything that he teaches, everything that he taught. He was teaching about the ways of heaven. This is what heaven is like. This is how things go in heaven. These are the values of heaven. Heaven has come near. In Jesus, heaven has come down to earth. And his plan is that we, his followers, would then live out heavenly values and heavenly ethics right here on earth right now. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says that this will be like yeast working its way through dough. That through us, the ways of heaven would, just like yeast, sort of infiltrate the rest of the world. And one of the values of heaven, one of the ethics of heaven, from Eden through to eternity, is peace. There's no violence in heaven. There's no war in heaven. So Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven has now arrived on earth. Start living like heaven now. Start showing the world now what heavenly peace looks like and spread the peace of heaven everywhere you go. Peaceify this world like yeast working its way through bread. Bring the value of heaven's peace everywhere you go. So we know conflict won't end until Jesus returns, but he has come to show us the perfect way to live. He's come to show us the way of the kingdom of heaven, and he tells us to love our enemies and to bless those who persecute us and to peacefully resolve conflict. And if he tells us to do those things, then that is our commandment. That is his ideal. The fact that violence exists in the Old Testaments in this sense doesn't actually matter. 
Because in the Old Testament, the kingdom of heaven had not yet come down. And now that the kingdom of heaven has come down, we live under a different ethic and we can't use the old one to justify us ignoring Jesus' command in the new one. So God has not changed, but heaven coming down to earth has changed everything for how we are supposed to live. And so as we look at some of these passages, and I'm just about done here, just a couple final thoughts. Um, God also has made a covenant with Israel in the Old Testament. He's made a covenant with them as a nation. And as a nation, as we have already discussed, the nation has a sword in its hand. The nation has a right to defend itself. And so God makes a covenant with Israel. And part of that old covenant is Israel gets to defend itself. Israel gets to, to defend its citizens, to resist evil. Um, we've seen from Romans that, that that is something that God has instituted, that nations can do that. And so there are times where God may use Israel to discipline other nations. There's times where other nations are brought in to bring discipline against Israel. But the problem with looking at God's old covenant with Israel to justify our violence today as Christ followers is that, of course, we're not Israel. We are not a nation. We are not under that covenant. God made a covenant with them. Part of that covenant was to defend themselves. But we are under a new covenant in Jesus. And so the teachings of Jesus supersede anything in the old covenant. And we are notoriously bad as Christians, not on this topic alone, but on anything of picking and choosing the parts of the old that we like that are going to be binding for us today, ignoring the parts we don't like, we really are bad at living under the new covenant. But in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul says, the picture that he uses, he says, you can only be married to one woman at a time. And this is the illustration he uses. You're in a marriage covenant with one woman. And now if she dies, you're not in that covenant with her anymore. You are free to marry a new woman. And you can be in a new covenant with a new woman. But you can't be in two marriage covenants at once. It's not possible. And Paul says that's what it's like looking at the old covenant versus the new covenant. You can't be in two covenants with God at the same time. You can be in one or the other. But then Hebrews 8.13 says that God has made the old covenant obsolete and that word, it just sounds so final. It sounds so finished. The old covenant is obsolete. It's been replaced by the new. And and by the way, the new one is way better. We want to live under the age of grace. We don't want to be under the law uh, and the commandments of the old. We want to be under the age of grace and, and forgiveness and the Holy Spirit and intimacy with God. But for whatever reason, we really like to try and keep one foot in the old and one foot in the new. And I'll just ask you as you wrestle through that, when Hebrews 8.13 says the old covenant is obsolete, uh, what do we think the word obsolete means? And under what grounds do we get to hold some of the, that old stuff? On what grounds are we trying to be married to two different people at the same time? Uh, be under the new covenant, scripture says. Be under the New Testament. So to sum up this question, I know that's a long one. This is the toughest question that we've had uh, just in terms of it needed some time to respond to it. So to sum up this last question, um, if God never changes and if Jesus and God are one and the same, then God is fully reflected in Jesus and Jesus must be the same God who occasionally used or at least harnessed violence in order to deal with the sins of Israel and other nations. So that must be true. Ultimately, we believe that God is love. Ultimately, we believe that love is peaceful. Ultimately, we believe that uh, Eden was peaceful and eternity will be peaceful. And ultimately, we believe that Jesus is the clearest expression of who God is 
and just as importantly, what God wants from us and how we are to live under the kingdom of heaven on earth as Christ followers. We trust that God in covenant with Israel sometimes calls them to defend nations or attack evildoers and resist evil as a nation. But since we are married to Jesus and we are not married as Israel under the old covenant, we are bound to the commandments of the new covenant. And so even if as God, he reserves the right to deal with violence at times amongst the nations and in the cause of resisting evil, Nonetheless, that does not in any way change the fact that God, as Jesus on earth, did not do those things when he walked the earth, commanded us not to do those things as he walked the earth, because the peace of heaven taking over the earth is his ultimate goal, and peace is what he wants his church to bring to the earth. And there's no contradiction there. And there's more that could be said. I'm going to stop there because I don't want to go on and on too long. Um, And that is the last of the questions that you guys brought in. So thank you for tough questions. Uh, thanks for hanging in there through this conversation uh, as we've gone through these questions together. I know that was a bit long. I hope uh, some of those answered some things for you. Uh, again, I said at the beginning, not, not all of these are maybe perfect answers. I am wrestling through them as well. If you have more questions, uh, we have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. I'm sure we will talk about this topic more as a church. Um, I, I think we should leave it for a little while, <laughs> just partly to give me a break. Uh, I wasn't planning on doing this extra, you know, message that is kind of two sermons long uh, this week, and I'm heading on holidays next week. So thank you for so many questions that made my last few days a desperate sprint for the finish line to try to get them done before I went away. But uh, but it really, I think, is good to dig into this stuff. It's good to uh, ask tough questions. It's good to try and answer tough questions and figure out. Uh, you know, where do we land on all of this stuff? And thank you for asking questions so graciously. I know not everyone agrees with what I'm saying here, uh, but no one has been angry. No one has been, uh, you know, divisive. Uh, the conversation has been respectful and, and gracious and loving. And I'm just so proud of the way we're handling things like this as a church. So thanks for listening. God bless you. Keep wrestling. Uh, and, and let's just ask God to show us his will and his ways and to make these things clear to us as we walk through these things together. God bless you guys.